0: We live in enemy-occupied territory. That's how C.S. Lewis described it in Mere Christianity. And when he first made that point, he was living during World War II. So I think that kind of, that that illustration was a little bit closer for the the original audience. But I think it's still a good illustration for us. And really, the way he describes it, it's like a civil war, but not between equals. Um, We're in this war where there's a group that's rebelling against the person who charge. So humanity, in a sense, is trying to secede from God's rule. So here we are. We're in this territory where God's enemies live. And we, we were once his enemies. And it was while we were his enemies that he sent his son on a rescue mission. And he's done it. He's rescued us. He's, He's transferred us from this kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, his kingdom. And he did that by his life, death, and resurrection. So we're now an outpost. We're like a, a unit of rescued enemy soldiers. And we now belong to him. But we're still here in this land. And and we're still in what is now enemy-occupied ter- territory. And in this place, this is where sin and death rule. So we're in that domain where we still experience their effects. Even though they don't have final say over us anymore. Something else is true, though, of our situation. So, and and this is the most important part. This war that we're involved in, it's already been decided. The outcome's already been decided. The decisive victories already happened. Sin and death have actually been defeated. And, And so that's, it's, it's true, but it's also true that sin and death have not relinquished their authority. They still rule over all of God's enemies, who are still his enemies, and they still try to rule us. And, and that's what makes it hard, living where we do, here in this enemy-occupied territory. We're surrounded by the influence of sin and death, and it still influences us, even though God has rescued us from it. So God's revealed to us the truth that his son conquered sin and death, nearly 2,000 years ago. He revealed to us that we're on the winning side now. But we have to live like that. We can't live as though sin were still in charge of us. So we need to hold out until that victory that's been accomplished is seen in all the world when every knee bows to the victor over sin and death. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to, Tell us why we can do that. In fact, that's why we gather at this this outpost of rescued sinners. That's why we gather weekly. We're gathering together to encourage each other to hold on, hold out. Keep going. The end of the war is in sight. It's just a matter of time. Enemy's power is broken. So Paul tells us in this passage, why we can actually do that, why we can hold on, how we can hold on to the end. We do that by focusing on the victory that is ours in Christ, victory that we've already begun to experience in the Spirit. And so what Paul teaches us in Romans 8, verses 9 through 13, it's, it's going to help us live out our lives in light of that victory in the Spirit. So that's where we're going to be this morning. You could turn there if you haven't already, mar- or, sorry, Romans Romans chapter 8. Again, it's on page 888. there in the Bible in the pew. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. And again, what Paul's going to teach us is how believers live in light of our victory in the Spirit. And he gives us three facets to doing that. We need to understand the circumstances of our victory, the certainty of our victory, and the responsibility of our victory. That's how we live in light of the truth. We understand it. So we need to understand the circumstances of our victory. We believers are indwelled by the Spirit, and we need to understand the certainty of our victory. We believers have already life by the Spirit, and then we need to understand our responsibility now in this victory. We have to put our sinful practices to death by the Spirit. So this is what we need to understand. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have life by Him, and we need to put our sinful practices to death by Him. And that's going to help us live the way that we're supposed to, knowing that we are victorious. So let's look at chapter 8 here and verse 9. See, the first of these... These facets to living in light of our victory in the Spirit. First of all, we need to understand the circumstances of our victory. Every believer is indwelled by the Spirit. That's our circumstances. That's that's how we have this victory. So he transitions here in verse 9. And he makes really an emphatic contrast with what he just said in verses 7 and 8. And there he was talking about being in the flesh. And he also transitions to move from talking generally to speaking directly to his audience. And he says to them, he directs his attention to these Roman believers. And he's saying he has every confidence. He has a great deal of confidence that he's talking to people who are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit. Even though he's confident of that, though, he, he begins with this conditional statement. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you now that's not really a genuine question for paul He's not genuinely questioning that but it would be a mistake for us to translate that as something like since he's he's deliberate in saying if because he's drawing his readers into what he's saying so when they heard this in their churches read paul wanted them to think as daniel wallace puts it if the spirit of god dwells in us of course he does and this means that we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, remarkable. He's wanting them to recognize, make the connection personally. So in chapter 7, he described what it was like to be in the flesh. And he repeatedly described it as, as the sin that dwells within. So what he was describing is the way that sin ruled over us in that fallen state. In that state of being in the flesh. James Dunn pointed out that, later rabbis, they would talk about how he who dwells in a house is the master of the house, not just a passing guest. And it seems like that is the way Paul is talking here and talking about what dwells in you. What dwells in you is the master. So we have a new master. In our old situation, sin dwelled in us, sin ruled. But we have a new resident. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us. And he's in charge. And that's why he says in verses 4 and 5, he talks about how we walk according to the Spirit now. How we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We're in a new state. We're in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now within us. He rules over us in the place of sin. And that doesn't mean sin can't influence us anymore. We're going to see that. But sin, Paul already said, will not rule over us. I'm not sure why the, the RSV made a change here in uh, translating the, the next line without the word if, and the ESV follows suit. Um, but the text more literally reads if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that person is not his. People can sometimes act as though what Paul's saying here, you know, having the indwelling Spirit, having being ruled by the Spirit, that's just for really spiritual Christians, as though it's not for everyone. Paul's being emphatic here that this is for every genuine Christian. So he's been drawing his audience in and throughout this whole section, he's saying, if, to make them think, consider, is this true of me? Is this really the truth? Do you have the Spirit of Christ? That's what we need to think. That's what we need to ask ourselves. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who puts you in relation to God through his Son. So that's why he's referred to here as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. So they didn't use the word Trinity yet. But you can see why they did begin to start to use the word Trinity. You can see the Trinity here. The triune God's at work. The Father sent the Son, and then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. And it's the Spirit who connects us to this salvation. So if you don't have the Spirit, Paul's saying, you're not a Christian. doesn't matter what you profess to be. No Spirit of Christ means you don't belong to Christ. You're not one of His followers. So, do you have the Spirit of Christ? Are you in a state of being in the Spirit? Are you walking in accord with the Spirit? Does your your life look like you're listening to the Holy Spirit? Is your attention fixed on him? I said last week, that that doesn't mean perfection. That's not what Paul's saying. We know that perfection awaits our glorification. That's when Christ returns and when we, we have this transformation that occurs. But Paul is saying there is a decisive change that's happened in our lives. Because we now have the Spirit. Robert Mounts put it this way. He said, although there may be times in a Christian's life when, at a, when a snapshot would show a person living according to the flesh, over time there should be evidence of progress. And, and he mentions this illustration by Charles Spurgeon who compared it to a person being aboard a ship. Spurgeon said that the believer may fall again and again on deck, but he will never fall overboard. So the question isn't, have you sinned? Do you fall? You're going to fall. The question is, are you on the boat? Is there evidence that you're actually on God's side in this cosmic conflict? And the evidence is, do you have the Holy Spirit? If you have the Holy Spirit, you are on God's side. You've been rescued. You're no longer his enemy. And that means you're on the winning side. That means you have victory. That's the, those are the circumstances of our victory. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The second facet to this this victory that we need to live in light of is we need to understand the certainty of our victory. Believers have certainty of our victory because even now, we have life in the Spirit. In verse 9, Paul's making it clear that those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they belong to Christ. And, And so he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And because of that, he can say that because the Spirit's in you, he can also say Christ is in you. That's not because Christ and the Spirit are the same person. It's because they share the same divine essence. They are both God, the one God. So Paul's describing this, the state of believers here, in whom Christ dwells by his Spirit. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life." because of righteousness. So there's two things that happen now in us. If we have Christ in us, there's two things going on. On the one hand, Paul says that your body, our body is dead because of sin. So even though we do belong to the new era, even though we have the spirit, we still exist in a fallen world. Our body is still impacted by the consequences of sin. So Paul's talking about the way that we live now as being dead. He's saying we're still impacted by death. It's not the last word, as he's going to say, but that is our experience. And then he, he starts using the, the term body here to describe our situation. The, the body is this physical existence. That's our point of contact with the fallen world. That, that's how we live in this fallen world, in this body. So we're bound to these conditions. Our, our physical existence is where sin and death still reign. So Even though we've been rescued from their power, ultimately we still experience the effects, the influence of sin and death. So if if you're not living when Christ returns, if if that's not the state that you're in, then you're going to die. That's the facts. The only people who escape that are those who are still living when Christ returns. So that's one side, though, of what's going on in us. That's only one side, and it's not his main point. That's why the ESV translates it beginning with the word although he's saying even though that's the, tr- the case that's true something else is true even though the the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness the body is dead but the spirit is life so he's talking about present realities this is true the spirit who dwells in us he's not simply alive he is life he's new life itself life in the new age and we have come to experience that because of righteousness. So we experience death because of sin. We experience righteousness be, or experience life because of righteousness. So all this language here of sin and righteousness, life and death, it points us back to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, where Paul talked about our representatives. You remember what he said there. Adam was our representative who brought us sin and death by his disobedience. But then Jesus is also a representative who brought us righteousness and life by his obedience. So he's talking, this righteousness he's talking about here is not what we do. It's what Jesus provided for us. This is imputed righteousness. We are made righteous because of what Jesus did. And we are made righteous by faith. And that's why we can have this life. Because Christ made us righteous. So, We have that now. We have that life now, even though we're still awaiting the full effects of it. Just like he's described us as dead now, even though we're still waiting to die. We haven't actually died yet. So we're we're waiting. We have the Holy Spirit now. We have this life now. What does that mean? He tells us in verse 11. And again, he begins with if. So is this true of you? Think about that. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, is that true of you? And just before you nod as though that's no big deal, do you understand what I just said? The hymn here is God the Father. Paul just said that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Notice he uses his historical name there. This is Jesus. This isn't a fairy tale. This is reality that we're talking about. A literal human male lived on this planet around 2000 years ago. He lived, he breathed, he, he walked, he ate, he slept just as truly as you and I right now. And he died. He stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. His brain stopped receiving oxygen. Every single cell in his body died. Really. And we know what happens when someone dies. At least we know what doesn't happen. You don't get up. You don't walk away from that. There's a permanence to death that we experience that in this life, that people experience. Jesus A real man died, and he was as dead as those that even in in our mourning we go and we see that are in the casket, they're dead. We know they're not coming back. That is the death he died. Real. And then something happened to him that doesn't happen to people. This is something people don't scientifically observe. Jesus was raised from the dead. His grave is empty, literally. Literally. And he didn't just come to back to life with some strange resuscitation after an overly prolonged period of time. He came back to a life. He was raised to a life that involves his ascension to the Father. He existed on a new level as a human. And he does currently exist on this new immortal level. That's the life he experienced. Truly, really, literally. So Paul is asking us to consider whether, whether or not that Holy Spirit... Who has this mysterious and profound Trinitarian fellowship with the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. If that spirit dwells in us. Literally. Not just in our minds. Not just just for a motivational thought. Like, well, that's that's a nice thing to think about. Is the Spirit of God in you? Truly? Factually? The one who did... The spirit of the one who did this miraculous transformation of Jesus that we also literally believe in is the spirit's presence as true as the cells in your body. That's what we need to consider. Because if that spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Just as truly as Jesus was literally and physically raised from death, God the Father is going to do the same thing literally to you, to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. So you can see how crucial it is that the that, that spirit is literally with us for us to then have a literal resurrection someday. This body of ours is going to die. It's a mortal body, he says. But that's not the end of our story. You don't only live once. If you belong to Christ and you have His spirit, whatever date is on your tombstone at the end after that dash, that's not the end. Of your literal physical reality. It's not the last word. Key and Peel, they have a, a comedy sketch. Now hear me out being really serious, but they have this sketch where this sports correspondent's interviewing this guy named Charlie Sanders after a game where he hit the game winner, the the winning shot, and he's just beside himself, he just can't contain himself, and the interviewer asks him how he feels, And, and this is what Charlie says, he says, I want to tell everyone watching right now, you can do anything, anything is possible, the world is yours, and the interviewer wants to ask him more questions, and Charlie just goes on, he says, there are no limits, all right, you can swim across the Atlantic, you can jump real high and touch the moon, and then the interviewer kind of stops and says, fantastic, you know, reminds everybody watching what happened and tries to ask another question and Charlie just keeps going. He's not done. He says, I can fly. Says, anybody can fly. If you believe in yourself the way I believe in myself tonight, you will fly. And the interviewer says, well, you know, he tried, well, actually tries to ask him a question again to bring it back and, and Charlie just kind of grabs the mic and says, kids. You can actually fly. And the interviewer stops him. Well, not literally. And Charlie just immediately jumps and says, Yes, literally. Grabs, he, he's talking and he says, Kids, young kids, I want you to go up on your roofs right now. Fly into the night sky. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 funny because it's just insane. You know, and, and the interviewer's trying to like don't do that, kids, don't do that. Don't get on your roofs right now. Don't you're trying to warn them. Normally when somebody says you can do anything if you believe in yourself, they don't mean that. They they don't actually think you can do anything. They have limits. Even if they think you can do more than they should think, they don't think that. They don't believe that. Now here's here's my fear. I'm afraid that Christians at times treat this idea of, of resurrection like the figurative way that we say you can do anything. It's just, it's kind of motivational. It's comforting it's not really a part of the real world. So what we, what we actually think is that this is just something that comforts us all the way up until we close our eyes for the last time. And we enter this kind of dreamy state that's, that's not really about this world. It's an afterlife. It's not physical. It's not real. And yes, we go to be with God, but there's a physical reality that we're talking about here that we will be raised and a part of literally Physically. So, when we hear someone say that, you know, that you, you'll be raised from the dead, I think in the back of our heads, we're kind of like Charlie's interviewer, saying, well, not literally. You know, this is kind of like in your head. It's in your mind. And maybe we never say that, but, but the impact that it has on our life seems like we don't really believe it. Because, I mean... If we really believed this, like Charlie Sanders believed he could do anything, it's going to impact us. We're going to to be a little enthusiastic about it. Because this is actually more amazing than being able to fly. I mean, it really is. Now, Charlie has no basis for believing that he can fly. That's just stupidity. But we have a basis for believing that we will be raised because someone actually did it. Literally, in this life. So, our victory over sin and death is a literal victory. It's literally ours because we literally have the Holy Spirit. Is that true of you? Do you believe that? And it's vital that you believe that for what Paul says next. He's told us about the circumstances, the certainty of our victory. Now he tells us this one final facet for living in light of our victory in the Spirit. He helps us understand the responsibility of our victory. See, believers must put sinful practices to death by the Spirit. And this responsibility here is a matter of life and death. So based on what Paul's been saying, he draws this conclusion, but he really wants his readers to pay attention to it. And so he says, so then brothers, just like he did in chapter seven, he's, he's addressing these people that he's, he's writing to and he calls them brothers. He means brothers and sisters. He doesn't want them to miss what he's about to say. So he's saying, so then brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Say, so don't miss this. Don't, don't miss what I'm about to say. It's very important. We don't owe anything to that old existence. So that means we don't follow the direction of our sinful desires. Why does he need to say that? Why isn't this just automatic? Because we still live in this fallen world. The flesh is still a factor in our lives. So because of that, since sin can still influence us, we need to keep in mind that we do not owe it any allegiance. It has no right over us. We're not on its side anymore. We don't have to listen to sin. We sang about that this morning. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Do we we believe that? We have to live that way. We have to act like that. Why? Why is it so important that we act like that? Look at what's at stake if we don't, Paul explains in verse thirteen that we absolutely must not live in line with what our sinful influence of the flesh wants us to do. He says, "For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live." It's a matter of life and death. Now, is Paul teaching salvation by works here? Is he saying that we have this life by what we do? No, he's not saying that. He's been very clear. We are saved by grace, not by works. He's already said this life we have is because of righteousness. And again, he means that, that righteousness that we receive by faith in Christ, not the righteousness we produce. We're righteous in Christ. But what is equally true, this is just as he told us just a few verses before, those who are merely flesh, who don't have the Spirit, they pay attention to the flesh. They live in line with what the flesh wants. Those who truly belong to the Spirit of God, they fix their attention on the Spirit. They live in line with Him. So those who fix their attention on the flesh are actually God's enemies, just like chapter 7 talked about. Actually, just like verse 7 talked about. And then according to verse 6, that leads to death. That's what he's talking about here. It's only those who are in the spirit showing that by their attention to the spirit, showing that by living in line with them. Those are the only ones who have peace with God. Those are the only ones that have life. So here's the, the reality. We don't have spiritual x-ray machines to actually verify whether our faith is genuine or not. Or not. We don't have any means of like looking into ourselves and saying, oh, yes, you have a genuine faith. The only thing that we have is how our lives go, the direction of our lives. It's the only basis we have to evaluate whether or not this faith we have is genuine saving faith. So while he's not saying you have to be perfect, that's not what he's saying, over time, there has to be evidence of progress. There has to be evidence that your direction in life is following in line with the spirit. Over time, that's what it has to look like, not the flesh. So this is a matter of life and death. So if you profess to be a Christian, to belong to Christ, but your life is just an unbroken string of fulfilling what you want, doing what you want to do, Paul's saying that means you're on the path that leads to death. And not just any death. This is the death he talks about in chapter 6, the death that's parallel to eternal life. This is the final death, eternal death, that we receive for the wages of our sin. But here's an alternative he says here. If if you live according to the Spirit, and he doesn't actually say He doesn't just say if you live according to the Spirit. Look at what he says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if you follow sin's rule, it's going to kill you. So you have to kill the deeds that your sinful desires want to do. That's when you'll live. So there's no peaceful compromise with sin. It's not like, okay, we'll just stop fighting. It's life or death. Somebody's dying. As John Owen put it in his book, Mortification, The Mortification of Sin, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a life and death struggle that we're talking about here. A person who doesn't fight against their sin will be put to death because of it. It's the person who puts to death these sinful desires that will live. These sinful deeds, I should say. Notice this is a present tense idea. Paul, he uses the present tense here when he says put to death. He's emphasizing, this is an ongoing thing. You're never going to complete it in the present life. You have to keep doing this. You're never finished. And and not in this life. And so John Owen is more quote is, do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Grant Gaines, he gave an illustration of this. He was talking about John Owen's book and he said, the deadliest snake in the world is Australia's inland taipan. The venom from one bite can kill 100 full-grown humans. Imagine you came home to find this venomous killer coiled up in your living room, what would you do? You, you wouldn't encourage your kids to play with it. You wouldn't keep it as a pet. No, you'd grab a shovel and aim for its head. And he says, we, we have something far more dangerous in our homes and hearts, sin. Sadly, too many people play with sin instead of putting it to death. If you found yourself stuck in a pit in the outback with this snake, you're not going to stop Looking for, reaching, grabbing anything you can find to kill that snake. You're not gonna stop and say, I'm sure I'll be okay. I'm just gonna curl up and take a nap. This snake could kill a hundred humans, adults, with one bite. You're not taking a nap. Now you could say, well, Kurt, it's, it's not the same. Yeah. It's worse actually when it comes to sin. See, this snake can only bring a momentary death. The death that sin brings, the sin brings with it, is an eternal death. It's worse. It's, it's more deadly. So imagine the way that we act towards sin. Sometimes we would never do that with that snake. We better do that with sin. Again, I'm not trying to say that, that our hope hangs on the meager threat of our, our efforts. But the ones, the only ones, the only people who can have confidence in their eternal security are those who fight sin. That's the actual proper effect of being saved, being rescued. If you're not fighting sin, Paul's saying you shouldn't feel any confidence that you were rescued from sin. Again, I just want to make sure you're hearing the distinction there. It's a very important distinction. Don't want you to misunderstand this. I'm not, I'm not saying our salvation is in our fight, that we're fighting to be saved. Our fight is the evidence of our salvation. So the fight is absolutely necessary. It's not what saves us, though. Does that make sense? The distinction. It's very important. If you're not killing sin, that should tell you you have no reason to believe that you were rescued from sin. He's not saying if you sin, this is the case. But what's your attitude when you sin? If your sin doesn't bother you, you're not killing it. And if it doesn't bother you, you should not think that you're, you're a Christian. You, if you never see any progress in this life over your sin, you're not fighting. And we are going to continue to fail, even in the same sins. But there should be progress. We should become more and more like Christ. There should be bigger stretches between those sins. We shouldn't fail in the same ways we failed five years ago, ten years ago. There should be progress over time. So, this evidence is necessary for our assurance. You notice the Bible never talks about assuring us on the basis of our profession of faith. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament? Jesus, nor Paul, nor anyone in the New Testament ever encourages somebody that they should be assured of their salvation because of their initial response to the gospel. Never. Not once. It's in continuing to follow Jesus. That's the only thing that could give anyone confidence that they've been saved. That they're on a path that leads to life. That they've been transformed. That they actually have the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we do this? That, that is a valid question. How do we fight sin? How can we be putting sin to death? Or putting the deeds of the body to death. No, that's what he says. Realize that's what he says. The deeds of the body, that's what we're putting to death. So we're putting to death activity, actions. To put to to death deeds means that you're stopping doing those things. That's your goal. Your goal is to stop sinning. How do we pursue that end? Especially since Paul and others like like John in his first letter tell us that we're not going to be perfect in this life. That we are going to sin. Now Paul told the Philippians that he hadn't attained perfection. That's what he was pursuing. But he hadn't attained it yet in his third chapter in that letter. And John said that any Christian who said they have no sin is just deceiving themselves and they're not even really a Christian. So the goal is to not sin. That's our goal. But. We understand that we're not going to achieve perfection until our glorification. So we're not going to do that until, we're not going to be perfect until Christ returns. That's when we're transformed. So the first step really in putting sin, putting these deeds of, of sin, of the, of the body to death, is to understand what the actual goal is. It's, it's a moment-by-moment moment struggle not to sin. It, it, it's not the goal to be perfect finally. It's, it's each moment we are struggling and, and trying to be more and more like Christ. to Be more and more like Christ more and more often. To grow up in, in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ. And Paul says when he says that in Ephesians 4, he says that we do that as a body. We grow up into Christ as a body. So, Another part to to actually putting this into practice is to realize it's a group project. We're not called to put sin to death all by ourselves. There's too many Christians who, who, who take this on like Rambo. And they don't realize they're a part of a unit of fellow soldiers. So don't try to kill sin by yourself. It's a lot harder to do that. It's a lot harder because... Even, even if you attend a church, but you're not willing to actually be a part of that church, not willing to live life with those people, then it's easy to walk away from that and go home and, and be kind of shielded from actually loving someone, actually being willing to week in and week out, be a part of somebody else's life who may drive you nuts. Because the miracle of a church is not that we're all alike miracle of a church is that we have something in common that gets past (laughs) the fact that we're not all alike. And we can be a real family. And if your family's like mine, people can drive you nuts. But being a part of that family is what demonstrates that you're you're really going to serve this person. If you're not a part of that, you can walk away from it and feel pretty good about yourself. So, it is in the context of the church where we do this, where we're equipped to do this by the Word. That is the job of the pastors and teachers, according to Ephesians 4. So, just hear me. I'm not saying you can never never study the Word and apply it for yourself. I'm not saying that. Just understand that the individualistic way we look at the Christian life in America is never found in the Bible. It's always a group project. Even the way we... listen, Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 16. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when we see that, we know it's the authority of the word, the purpose of God's word, but we don't pay attention to the context. Do you know what that paragraph started out with? It started off in verse 14 where Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, this is what you need to do. You need to pay attention to this word because it's this. And then we don't pay attention to verse 17. What does 17 say? Right after saying that, it says, The scripture is this way, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That verse is actually primarily talking about, primarily applied to Timothy and those to which he entrusts this word to, that they could teach it to others. The New Testament perspective is that that God entrusts to the church, pastors and teachers, to equip the church by this word that equips them. So, Don't misunderstand me. You can study the word, you can study the Bible, but understand the way that God designed it was that we would be a part of a group where he actually gifts certain people to teach that word to equip the saints. This is a group project. This is not an individualistic, just me and my Bible, out on the lake, out in the field. You know, there was a guy who came in once who talked about how his church was Smith Park. Literally told us that was his church. You remember that? At the time, I was kind of so taken off. I had no idea how to respond to him. But that's not church. Church is a gathered group of people. (laughs) It's people. It's not a place. So this is a group project that we're doing. Now, the most important thing that we need to hear from this, we're just scratching the surface of, of putting sin to death. We need to understand this is not our effort. We have to do this. But it's not our effort, and that's a confusing thing. Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. We do this, but by the Spirit. It's accomplished by the Spirit. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's where the power is. We have no power to do this. The Spirit has to be at work in us, to even want to do this, Paul says, in Philippians, and to actually do it. But we have to do it. (laughs) That's the struggle. We're responsible to act, but we can only do that with the knowledge that the Spirit is actually the one who produces it in us. So we do act in faith. We pursue love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control but we only do that believing that that it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who accomplishes it. And we do that recognizing, again, what Paul's been teaching. We understand the basis for our standing before God is not our effort. We're justified by faith in Christ. Jesus was our perfect substitute. We could never make ourselves right with God by what we do. Jesus came and did what we would not and could not do. He was perfectly obedient. What we were supposed to do when we were made, he actually accomplished. Even though we've rebelled against that. And then he died, accepting the punishment that sinners deserve. And then he was raised to this new resurrection life. Literally, truly, as truly as he died, he was raised. And he did that for sinners. He didn't do that for people that are good. He did that for sinners who realize that they have sinned. They know they deserve to be punished. And they believe that Jesus was their representative. They believe that he is why they have this spirit. And only because of him. And, and if that is true, if that's what you believe, then you do have this spirit where you can begin to live as one who is rescued by Jesus. You can show that you're on that path to life. Do you believe that? if you want to know anything more about that, I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. But if you do believe that, then understand you have victory. You have a victory over this present fallen world. We're still in enemy-occupied territory. But we're on the winning side. Victory has already been accomplished. We, we're waiting now for that victory to be seen. But it's true. And so we need to keep our eye on it. We need to pay attention to it. We do that by understanding these circumstances of our victory. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We understand the certainty of our victory. We have, even now, eternal life by the Spirit. And we, we need to understand the present responsibility of this victory. We must Put sinful practices to death by the Spirit. And we can do that trusting in the faithfulness of our God. He's told us he will do it. He will do it. Join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, you would produce these things in our life. That you would even produce in us the confidence of your presence that you would help us even in our weakness we are, we are weak we cannot apply your word that you inspired in our own strength and effort so we're going to take steps of faith only because we believe that you are going to bring those things about that you promised to bring about so we ask you now in faith to make us like this, to have confidence in the victory that we have in you. That you would drive that truth home to us. That we might live in line with what you want. We pray that anyone here does not know the Father through the Son because of you. That you would cause them to pay attention to the, the good news about Jesus. She would use your powerful good news transform their heart. And we ask you to do that for the glory to the Father because of the Son and by you. Amen.